0: Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 46. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners, Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. This is the word of God.
1: If you've been with us the past uh, several weeks, we have been looking at passages that draw us into the final days of Jesus before he was crucified on the cross. And that's what we're doing. It's kind of a break from our usual, usual uh, sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, which is also in the Gospel according to Matthew. Um, but we're really looking at the passion of Jesus, the passion week, the passion days of Jesus Christ. Passion means suffering. And uh, today's passage, it's, it's visceral. Um, if, you, if you pay careful attention to what's going on here, whether you've been in the church, whether you've grown up in the church or not, it's, a, it's an agonizing passage. And um, we're talking about Jesus's agony. What was the cause of this agony. What is the cause of this suffering? Because once it begins, it does not end until he dies. So we're going to look at three points very quickly. Uh, What was the agony? Why did he have to go through it? And how do you apply it? How does it shape you? Can you get more simple than that? What was the agony? Why did he have to go through it? And how does that shape us? First, we're going to look at what the agony was. Verse 36, then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, who's them? They are the 12 disciples. And he says to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. And there he took uh, Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. The two sons of Zebedee that's James and John. And, and so mainly what's going on is they get to the, the this garden, and Jesus intends to go deeper into a deeper part of this garden. It's really like an olive grove, and he goes with his three closest friends among the twelve disciples. That's what he does. But in verse 37, he says, it says that he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him and began to be sorrowful and troubled. The Greek there literally implies that this suffering, this agony began as he was walking. It's not like he got there, stopped, did some quiet time, was praying, and all of a sudden it just hit him, or something happened to him while he was there. He brings these friends along with him. He's anticipating it. He's basically telling his friends, I don't want to be alone. I need you here with me. Pray for me. Pray with me. And as he's walking, it's already hitting him. What was hitting him? He's starting to feel sorrowful and troubled. What began? Verse 38, Jesus says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And so Jesus begins to experience this sorrow, this grief this burden that is so overwhelming, this is the agony, so overwhelming. It's the spiritual, mental, emotional, psychological trauma that's taking place, and it's so strong. He's saying, it's, guys, it's killing me. I am, I'm drowning in this. I'm dying right now, even before he went to the cross. Jesus is saying, friends, this is going to kill me, This is overwhelming me to the point of death. That's amazing. It's amazing. Why? Because Jesus Christ is God. And yet, he's taken aback by this. And the Gospel of Luke tells us something very, very unique here. None of the other Gospels point this out. And that's that when Jesus came back, each time he comes back from praying, he's drenched with sweat. And that sweat is actually mixed with blood. It's an actual clinical issue. Believe it or not, it's known to happen only in times of extreme shock, severe shock. They call it hematidosis. And because of what is happening, it's so unbearable, Jesus is literally bleeding before he gets to the cross. Because it's so unbear- unbearable, he's dying before he ever goes to the cross. He's falling apart. What's happening? What was this agony? In uh, verse 49, we actually get what's going on here because Jesus. we see it in Jesus' prayer. Jesus prays three times. May this cup be taken from me. I'm paraphrasing it. That's basically what he asks God. May this cup be taken from me. In other words, must I drink from this cup? Three times he asks that. He asks it in verse 39. He asks for it in verse 42. He asks again in verse 44. He says it again the third time. What's the cup? Must I drink from this cup? The cup throughout the history of the Bible represents the justice of God. The wrath of God. The wrath of God that the world, that we deserve because of sin. In the ancient times, uh, when you nowadays, uh, capital punishment is a big political issue, right? We politicize just about everything here. And uh, today we find incredibly humane ways. If somebody is going to be put to death, there are humane ways of doing it. In the ancient times, there was no humane way of doing it. They explicitly and intentionally did not make it humane. It was oftentimes grotesque. And one of the ways uh, that they officially executed a person was making them drink poison. They made you drink a cup. Uh, you drank this poison, and that poison, once it gets absorbed by the body, it starts to rip you apart from the inside. That's what happens, right? And then you died. So the ancients uh, used this term to represent absorbing the justice and the wrath of God. And this is at the root of Jesus's agony. Keep in mind, Christian martyrs, you got to remember this, Christian martyrs throughout history. If you ever read books about martyrdom, Christian martyrs, books throughout history, Christian martyrs over centuries died with way more courage than Jesus in this text. I mean, Jesus, you see it. He's falling apart in this passage. If you read stories about Christian martyrs, oftentimes they're going to get burned at the stake. They're going to be thrown into ovens, and you hear them. They say, these writers will write that these people are singing as they're dying. They're singing until eventually their tongues are cut out. Things are happening to them that are grotesque and inhumane, and yet they, many of them, found it joy to go through this. How is that possible? Why is it that the the ultimate representative of our faith dies seemingly with much less courage, at least here as he's, as he's facing danger and death. And the reason is because despite their suffering, these people never had to go through what Jesus was going through here. These people were never going to go through what Jesus was going to face on the cross. And so these people, in fact, because of what Jesus had gone through, there was an assurance that brought them poise and courage. We're going to get to that part later, the, how that shapes you. Why did it bring them poise? Why did it bring our martyrs in the past, in history, why did it bring them poise and courage? It's because they never had to face the justice of God, not like this. They never had to face the wrath of God, not like this, because of their sin, which their Savior, which their King had absorbed on our, beha- on our behalf. They never had to drink from the cup of God's wrath. What began in verse 37? Because it couldn't have been the news. It's not like Jesus didn't know what was going to happen to him. He's been predicting over and over to his disciples, you will betray me. I will be handed over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. I will be betrayed. I will be arrested. I will be tortured. I'm going to be put to death. He had predicted this over and over to his disciples to the point where his disciples couldn't understand. They were almost indignant. This cannot happen to you, they said. But he knew. So it couldn't have been news about what was going to happen to him. He knew that he was going to be drinking the cup. And as he was walking, he was beginning to experience it. God was starting to turn his face away from him. And Jesus was experiencing it. And it was killing him. Why did he have to go through it? When you read passages like this, it humbles you. I mean we have leaders in the church, we have pastors in the church, we have people who are on their way up here. We must never forget as a body what Jesus had gone through for his people. None of what you will ever do will be more important. None of what you have ever accomplished will be, will be more critical and vital than understanding and remembering this. Why did he go through it? An answer, a simple answer is he chose to. He chose to go through it. But I'm going to elaborate for you. The sinful heart rejects God. What, what sin is, I mean, people have many ways of, of growing up in youth group and college group. You know, you learn many definitions of sin. But it, ultimately, the sinful heart rejects God. The sinful heart rejects God's kingship. The sinful heart turns from God and, and runs away from God. so that Because ultimately, the sinful heart says, I can do better. I'm my own king. I'm going to make my own decisions. If you go all the way back to the beginning in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, you have the Garden of Eden, and God tells Adam, God, Adam is the perfect representation of man. If, you, if we were to take a vote in all the world, in all of world history, to choose one man who would be the perfect representation of his people, if we were given a vote, right, it would have been Adam. Unequivocally, there is not even a second, there is no close second, and so Adam was the perfect man, and God tells Adam, here's what I want you to do to Adam. I want you to obey me regarding this tree. Do not go near this tree. Do not, I mean, well, he didn't say do not go. He said do not eat from the fruit of this tree. I want you to obey me regarding the tree. And Adam rejected God. He disobeyed God. He took from the tree. And God said basically this. By saying that, God was saying, you can either have me, all of me, or you can have this tree. And Adam chose the tree. Adam chose a tree. But the tree meant selfishness. The tree meant self-glory. The tree was about self-serving, being your own king. And so really, the wrath of God is what? It's giving Adam what he really wanted, what he chose. He chose the tree. It's giving Adam, it's giving us, it's giving our hearts what we really want apart from him. And so God turns away from him. Adam is driven out of the Garden of Eden. In other words, what God says is this. If you really want to get away from me, If you really want to turn from me, if you really want to run from me, if you really want to reject me, my faithfulness is so faithful that right now, I'm still around. I'm still present. Even if you don't know me, believe me, trust me, thankful for me, confess your sins to me, repent before me, it doesn't matter. I'm still here. And so there's some semblance of grace in your life that is common across all people. It's not like only Christians get the sun and everyone else has rain pouring on them. We all get sun. We all get, there are people, wealth in the world is distributed evenly or unevenly to anybody. It's accessible to people who are going to work and have whatever context and circumstance they're in to be able to acquire it. It's not only Christians who get rich, in other words. And so there's this, and he says, more than anything, that possibility of coming to the Lord, that possibility of coming to Christ is accessible to everybody. It's offered to everybody. And so he says, but there will come a day when he says that will no longer be the case people who want to reject me, disobey, run from me, choose their own life, they'll ultimately have it for the all of eternity. I will no longer, they wanted to be away from me, and I'm going to give them exactly what they're asking for, you see. But that's what he was giving Adam. He says, you're going to be out of my presence. But that's sin, and that sin is ruin. That sin is destruction. Why is it destruction? Because, you see, we were built We're going to go into this. There's a later series coming after the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be talking about uh, the creation story. We were built in God's image. If you take, what's, what's an image? An image in a mirror is a mirror reflection of what? The beauty of the source. So it needs the presence of the source to reflect appropriately. It's designed to do that, Right? So we need the presence of God in our lives. We need his love, we need his acceptance, we need his embrace, we need his glory, we need to serve him. But because now God, uh, the, the relationship between God and man has been broken because of our sin, we chose this. Adam chose the tree, the federal representation of man, the one whom is perfect above all other men said, You know what? I'm choosing to reject God. And so as a result, now we're this broken image still needing God's presence, still needing God's glory, still needing his love, still needing acceptance, and that's why we need other people's love. That's why We're constantly craving love and acceptance. Tim Keller, I don't know if he coined this term, but he says, you know, in you there's a God-sized hole, a hole in your heart that only God can fill, but because you don't have God in your life, we're trying to fill it with other things, and it's not enough, you see. That's what our sin has produced. Ever since the Garden of Eden, when we chose to be our own king, we ultimately rejected the presence of God. We're this image of God, this broken image of God, without a source. There's no beauty. There's no direction. There's no glory. So we're constantly looking for meaning and love and acceptance. That's what we're doing. Because we lost the presence of God, because we lost the love of God, His glory. We're looking for it in other relationships. So. And these relationships replace God. Instead of the glory of God, we've replaced the glory of God with what? The glory of a promotion, the glory of a bonus. Instead of the love of God, we replaced it with the love of a woman, the love of a man. We cannot. It's an addiction, you see. We need this. We're saying, this is what I really need. I get what you're saying. I appreciate it. It sounds good. It's beautiful. But this is what I really need is what we say. But the ancient times, they knew what it meant to have the presence of God that there's nothing that could replace it. They knew that that was what they needed. In Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 to 26, I'm going to read it for you, um, but oftentimes if you've grown up in the church, you'll hear it in the benediction or something like that. It goes like this. The Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Now, uh, it's kind of like almost uh, written out like Hebrew poetry. And I'm going to give you a very, very short uh, Hebrew lesson here. Hebrew words, when they're, when they're arranged like this, they're arranged in a particular way where each line, each stanza of the line, that, that each statement that's being presented um, is further elaborated by the subsequent line. And so when you read your Psalms and you see the indentation there, that indented line is a further elaboration of the line that precedes it. That's how you read these things. That's how Hebrew poetry is written. That's how uh, lines like this in Hebrew are written. And so if I'm going to explain to you what that means, when the the author writes, the Lord bless you and keep you, well, how? It's by making his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord uh, blessing you is to make his face shine on you so that you can reflect it and be gracious to you. And how is that further elaborated? Because he will turn his face toward you and give you peace. The peace of God, turning his face towards you, the intimacy of God, the grace of God, making his find, the, the beauty of God, the blessing of God, the protection of God, it's all the same thing. It's all one thing. It's all the same. That word peace, that word peace, is a, a perfect, holistic peace. The Hebrew word shalom is a perfect, holistic peace in every dimension. That means When he says, I bless you and keep you, I want to give you, I, want, I wish peace on you, that peace, he's talking about a relational peace, that you would have relational peace, financial peace, physical peace, sexual peace, environmental peace, internal peace. All those pieces, right, put together, right? That there's a sense of justice in the world, that everything is right with the world, and that you can, the ancients, they knew this, that you can only experience this in the presence of God. In other words, if you lose the presence of God, your world is at war. You are falling apart. And war is what? War is ruin. War is destruction. War is unrest. And so what's going on in Jesus is what? He's saying, I'm right now experiencing God beginning to turn from me. And so the unrest and the war and the destruction and the ruin and the suffering of the justice of God, the wrath of God is now starting to come on me. Why is that so important? Because Jesus was one with the Father. How many times has He said, I am in Him and He is in me? Jesus Christ had oneness with the Father, perfect oneness. The Apostle Paul explains that because Adam failed, the second Adam is Jesus, and he was perfect, perfectly one with the Father, and perfectly obedient. That means he had the love of God. He had the grace of God. He experienced. He understood the intimacy of God organically. He he understood the embrace of God. he, He needs it like we breathe the air. We need it. And yet Jesus says, if anybody understands what it means to have it and need it, it's me. The presence of God, for all time he had it. Never wavered in his faithfulness. Always, if there's any one person that deserved the faithfulness of God and the love of God and the embrace of God, it was Jesus. Look at his beauty. But as he was walking with his friends, he was starting to pray. And as he was starting to pray and commune with God, he turned his soul to the Father. He turned his own face to the Father. And he started to see the emptiness that was there. The silence of God. That's the agony. That's what took him aback. There was nothing there. There was just separation. The agony of hell. You know what hell is? Hell is complete separation from God. So instead of having the presence of God, he saw hell. That's what he saw. He was drinking the cup of hell drinking the cup of complete separation God for our sins, and it was ruining him. So why did he do it? It's not because he was disobedient, but because he was obedient. It's not because he was unfaithful, it's because he was faithful. He was experiencing the separation of God from his life, not because of his hatred towards God, but because of his love for God, because of his love for the Father, his faithfulness to the Father. Jesus chose to receive all the justice, all the wrath of God on human sin. He was experiencing that all on his own, and he was starting to experience it there, right there. Now, Before we close out this point, there are people who say, well, this is exactly the reason why I'm not a Christian. Because in our critical literary thinking, as we look at the Bible, we see God as a very angry God. And I believe that God is a God of love. The Bible shows that God is so angry, He's filled with wrath. There's constant passages about promising justice. He can't be a loving God. I want to believe that God is loving. I want to believe that God is all-loving. He just loves people. But think about this. I'm going to submit to you. A God without anger. A God without wrath, a God without justice, a God without the cup is much less loving than the one that you're thinking about. And I'm going to explain why. I'm going to give you a couple reasons. One, if God lets even the smallest sin go, if he truly is God, and he lets even the slightest sin go, the slightest evil go because he's just all loving, he just lets it go, that means sin wins. Sin wins. Evil wins in the end. Number two, no one who's ever loved anyone, no one who's ever been hurt by that person that they love, you who are a finite being, everyone heres we're old enough now that one of us, I mean, at least one point in our lives, we've experienced some form of betrayal or hurt. And if you think about it, if you've ever loved that person and you've been hurt by them, you, you can't just let it go. You can't. It's painful to let it go. You can't let it go. Either they must pay for it or you're paying for it, right? Either they must pay or you have to forgive. And if you forgive, you're paying for it. You're paying for their sin because you're absorbing the humiliation that comes with their betrayal. You're experiencing the betrayal and the pain that comes with their betrayal. You're experiencing all the aftermath and you're suffering that alone, you see? If you've ever been hurt by somebody you know that even a sorry an apology isn't enough to the degree of the betrayal there is some payment that has to be made and either that person must pay or you're going to be paying it through absorbing all of the hurt number three parents are going to understand this well um parents you come to church and you um you know right now it's relatively quiet right but uh, as soon as this period ends it becomes crazy children start running down here, and you see you're talking to somebody, and you, out of the corner of your eye, you see your friend's child acting a fool. Does that enrage you? No. You kind of, in your heart, you kind of roll your eyes at it, right, and you move on. But what if it's your child acting a fool? You know, uh, you know, I'm not going to say who it was, but I remember one time I was talking out of the corner of my eye. I saw another child spitting on one of the children, like, you know, and I'm wondering, like, if I was this parent, I wonder who the parent, like, where the parent is, but if they saw that, how would they react, you know? Um, if you saw your child, you would grab, you run over, like, mid-sentence, you just kind of run over, you grab the child, grab their arm, and you, and you have, you know, nowadays, they just pull you aside and talk. In my generation, they didn't pull you aside and talk to you, okay? In my generation, there was a back room, you know, and uh, you came out, one person's smiling, the other person's crying every time. That's what happens, Right? And so, uh, you know, they pull you aside, they correct the child. Um, and why? Because as a parent, when you see your child um, acting foolish in a in a in an evil way, it hurts you to see that. That hurt is proportional to your anger, right? Now, you oftentimes we're sinful parents. Sometimes our anger is disproportionate to the sin and the evil right? So I'm not saying that this is condonable all the time, right? But generally speaking, the hurt is at the least proportional to the anger. And that anger, why? Because it's proportional to your love for that child. I'm not saying that all parents have proportional anger. They don't. But take a God who's infinitely loving, infinitely for his children, and now look at his love for his children, and his children are acting a fool Sin, evil, that wrath is infinite, you see? I wish I could go into that more, right? It's more, uh, but lastly, God, a God that just loves. I believe it was Tim Keller who said this. A God who just loves, there's no cost to that love. Then what is that love worth? What is that love worth? If you diminish Jesus' suffering, if you, diminishes, if you diminish God's, God's wrath, then you're going to be diminishing God's love. The love, the God that you're thinking about is much less loving than a God that is filled with infinite wrath because of his people and their sin. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Look at the cross and look at what Jesus did. It's an incredible cost. A God without wrath Is not more loving. It's much less loving. And Jesus Christ, he's suffering the agony that we deserved because of the infinite love of God for his people and thus the infinite anger and wrath. And Jesus Christ was suffering that wrath for his people. That's what he was doing. That's why he was suffering it. How does it shape you? How does it shape us? Why did God begin to let Jesus experience this? Ever wonder? I mean, it would have been much quicker. You'd think that he'd be a little bit easier on his own son to just say, listen, it's bad enough you're going to the cross for these people that we love. So I'm just going to send you and hurry you through it. It was excruciating. There was a week of passion. Right? And then there was the, the the prayer and then the betrayal and then the arrest and this is all being plotted over the course of time why did God set this up this way why did he have here in this place in Gethsemane why did he begin to let Jesus experience this and there's this amazing sermon if you ever want to if you ever do research Jonathan Edwards he's a, a, an American philosopher theologian thinker I mean even secular commentators will tell you that a, he was a brilliant thinker in America um, and uh, he, he's a, he was also a pure and writer and preacher, and there's a sermon that he had preached called Christ's Agony. It's an amazing sermon. Uh, I mean, you got to get through the old language, but it's an amazing, amazing uh, text there that I read. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna take one little snippet, I'm gonna read it to you. He puts it like this God first brought him, that's Jesus, God first brought Jesus and set him at the mouth of the furnace that he might look in and stand and view its fierce and raging flames, that he might see where he is going to go, that he might see where he is going, and he might voluntarily enter into it and bear it for sinners. What he's saying is this. God brought Jesus to the mouth of the furnace, hell. And there Jesus saw hell. He saw it. He experienced it. He saw the fury of the flames he realizes where he is going he sees it now to the depth and god brought him there so that jesus would still choose to enter in look at the love of god look at the love of jesus the compassion of jesus every day we are so selfish and living and just pursuing our own desires And here's Jesus in Gethsemane, agonizing over his people, agonizing over what he's going through. And he goes and he sees he's standing before the mouth of the flames. And that heat is so brilliant. He's saying, it's killing me, just standing and peering into it. It is destroying me, but I would voluntarily enter into it. That's what he prays. He says, I will voluntarily enter into it and bear it for sinners. Jonathan Edwards calls this, Jesus experiencing, because it wasn't death at the moment, the shadow of the death that he would experience, the darkness of the death that he would experience, and yet he chose it. And knowing that we have a full assurance of Jesus's faithfulness to the Father that is infinitely perfect, his obedience then to the end infinitely perfect you have a child that child does one good thing and it like makes your day because he's so bad all day right that's how it is parents you understand here's the here's a son who is infinitely holy infinitely obedient infinitely perfect can you imagine the agony of his father knowing what jesus his own son who is infinitely holy and perfect is going to endure for what because of what he has done no he was perfectly holy because what we have done Don't ever question the love of God. He did it. You think he did it for kicks? Let's try it out. To experiment? No. He did it because of his love for his people. He loves a son, yes. It tore him apart. But he loves his people. That's God. That's the love of God. Why did Jesus do it? It's kind of like all three points are kind of mixing into the third point, I guess, right? What are the two greatest commandments? Jesus, Jesus himself says, what are the two greatest commands? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and, and, uh, and mind and strength. That's what he says. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. By going through Gethsemane and going to the cross, Jesus Christ was fulfilling and embodying the two greatest commandments that he himself preached to his people. Peter, James, and John, they were there. They were supposed to support him there in prayer. Jesus asked them to do one thing, to stay awake, right, keep, keep watch, and pray for me. Stay here for me. Keep watch for me. Pray for me. Verses, verse 40, he says that. Verse 43, he says that. Verse 45, he says that. So in essence, that, in that I've walked you through essentially the whole text here. He says, basically, I'm going to kind of reinterpret this. He's going to say, guys, I don't want to be alone when I, to face what i'm about to face three times he asked them Now number three very important in the bible because it's a superlative you know generally in the in the bible you see superlatives and and this kind of you can kind of look at this text and say that the first time he asked it was bad the second time he asked, it was really bad the third time he asked he is dying here it the, the pain is so excruciating so he's he it wasn't a i'm angry at you guys he is drowning in this agony, and he's saying, please just pray for me. Please just, just be with me here and pray with me here. God could have had them stay up. He could have had them affirm Jesus and encourage Jesus, but no, they are out. They are out. And look at Jesus, so focused and so gentle, he just keeps asking. He knows their weakness. He says it. Spirit is willing. Your flesh, it's weak. I get it. It's why I die for you. It's why he dies for them. And notice Jesus, he chooses to face the furnace completely then alone. Completely alone. There are no friends present. They're all out. He's dying for them. They can't even stay up and pray for him. He's out. They're out. The father is gone. He is alone. And there is no complaining. There is no grumbling. There is no hint of pride that look what I'm doing for these people. There's no resentment. It's all love all love. God says to Adam in the first garden, obey me regarding the tree. And Adam rejects God. He rejects God. He disobeyed. God said, you can have me or have this tree. And Adam chose the tree. Here is Gethsemane. God is bringing Jesus to the furnace of the flames, to the flames of the furnace. And he basically says this, I want you to obey me regarding the tree. Jesus, the second Adam, the greater Adam, I want you to obey me regarding this tree. And Jesus fully obeyed. He chose to obey. And God says, you can have me and be safe and be secure, or you can have this tree. And Jesus says, I will obey you and I will have the tree. And he obeyed. Adam lived. Adam lives. Jesus dies. This tree, the cross, was about selflessness. First tree in the Garden of Eden, selfishness. This tree is about God's glory. The first tree, Adam's tree, was about self-glory. This tree is about Christ's love for his people. The first tree, Adam's tree, is about selfish love, selfish protection. In the first tree, Adam's lived even though he disobeyed because in the second tree jesus christ died even though he obeyed look at the love of god in christ look at the faithfulness of jesus look at the graciousness of jesus the grace of jesus he comes back his friends couldn't even stay up to pray that's us so incredibly unfaithful and so he's looking at his friends and they're not praying for him. And they're sleeping. And you know what he says? He says, he says, rise at the end because it's begun. They're coming. I will be faithful to the end. I will be faithful to you to the end. You can count on me. In Jesus, you have perfect obedience, perfect love. How does that shape us? Guys, I had like 15 of these. I'm going to run through in five minutes like... Eight of them, okay. Half of them. Come on, uh, cut it back, right? We'll save the rest for another sermon. I'm gonna go very fast, though, okay? The first is Jesus was faithful. One, we can we can surrender, we can submit to Him. Jesus suffered the ultimate hell. In a sense, He died twice because he faced a furnace here, and then he died on the cross, and he got nothing out of it, he got nothing for it. We're not like that. For us, we're constantly weighing out. Okay, you want me to do this? What am I really gonna gain from this? What am I really gonna benefit? Do I have time? You know, we, we're constantly doing this, right? I'll obey, but give, in return for this, or, or I'm not really sure if I'm gonna get anything in return. You know, uh, I'm not really encouraged, you know, uh, by, by this. Um, and when we don't get what we want, we feel defrauded, you know, we get angry. You know why? Because we, we would never, we do things out of calling, not really out of obedience to the Lord. It's because we're obeying ourselves and what we're going to get out of it and what we desire. We're negotiating with God. We're bargaining with God. We're actually obeying ourselves and our own desires. That's what we're doing. But when you do something for the Lord out of complete surrender, what you're saying is, I am holy and completely yours. That's obedience. That's surrender. That's number one. Number two, Jesus didn't just obey and then die for our sins because if that's all he did, uh, then, then it's still really up to us to earn God's, God's love, right? And we can't. Jesus perfectly chose to receive all of our sins. We call that, the theological term for that is imputation. He, re, he chose to receive all of our sins and he suffered because of his love for us. But on the other hand, Jesus Christ also lived a perfect life all the way through. It wasn't just here that he was perfect. All the way through from the moment he was born, fully acceptable to God throughout his ministry, throughout his life, here at Gethsemane, on the cross, so that he could earn God's love for us, you see. And that gets transferred to you. Double imputation on the cross. A Christian says, yes, my sins are paid for by the Savior's death. But it's his righteousness transferred to me that gives me an assurance of God's love and that thing that we've been looking for all our lives, which is access. That's why we need that promotion. That's why we need the bonus. That's why we're constantly leaving and slaving and working so hard and laboring for this. We want access because that equals love. We want access because that equals blessing. That equals peace. And we think if I can just scrounge up this much, then I'll be okay. And we're not because we need more and more. That's the addiction. And addiction is always ruin. Addiction always ruin. They never help. They never heal. What we need is God's presence. And you have it. On the cross, Jesus Christ says, Now I'm forsaken. My God, my God. The only time in the entire Gospels where he doesn't refer to God as his Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, I am ruined now. I'm facing the ultimate destruction. Now I'm in the flames. He says, now this is the ultimate darkness. Now I've, this is, the poison is in and I've absorbed it and it's tearing me apart on the inside. And so the Holy Spirit has been disengaged. The Trinity has been torn apart. And God is agonizing too. God has just lost his own son. And so there's grieving across the board in heavens and on earth. Everything is falling apart. An earthquake happens. Dead are coming out of the graves. Darkness goes over the land. We're seeing physically and cosmically everything that is going on inside Jesus. And why did it happen? Jesus Christ was rejected so that we would be accepted. Jesus Christ was forsaken so that we would have access in him, union with Jesus then why do you work so hard? That's the application. Then why do you work so hard for the approval of other people? When it comes to helping out a friend or being with a friend, boom, we jump. When it comes to obeying the call of God, we have to calculate and negotiate and think about it. Do I have, you know, does this fit into my schedule? Does this fit into my life scheme, what I want? Why do you fear rejection? when the only rejection that can ruin you has already been experienced for you by Jesus? Why do you need to get in when you're in? You're in and the only place you need to be in. Number three, that should lead to not less integrity in your life, greater integrity in your life. Look at the integrity of Jesus. He is in the dark. Everyone's asleep. No one's watching. What are you like when no one's around in your life? What are you like when you're in the dark? What are you like when everyone else is asleep? Steve Jobs says, you know, the design, I'm kind of paraphrasing something he said. Steve Jobs says, you know, the design on the outside um, has to become the same as the design on the inside. In other words, you can't have something that looks nice on the outside, but then the inside is all messed up. If you open up a computer in the 80s, you open up a PC in the 80s, it's all messed up inside. Because it didn't matter, as long as it works, you know? As long as it looked decent on the outside. Steve Jobs said, why can't the inside and the outside look good? Operate well, you know? Because wouldn't people pay a premium for that? That's the whole purpose of Apple and what they did, right? Right? What's integrity? to have something that's integrated on the inside and the outside. What are you like when no one's around? Is there integrity? Are you integrated? What are you like? What do you like? What is your heart like? Is there integration or disintegration? Because Jesus Christ was exactly the same inside and out. That means you can trust Him. You can embrace Him. But it also means that because His righteousness is transferred to you, there's power. It's not just to give you a better reputation. It's not just to improve your life. There is power to change. There is power to grow. There is power to commit, even in the darkest times. And we see it in Jesus. And that power can hold you steadfast in yours. Number four, that means, hey, Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed. The king of the universe Prayed. Jesus is king, but look at him. How did he pray? So honest, so vulnerable. He says, I'm dying here. He, says he doesn't just spit out Bible verses that he knows. I mean, he knew the Bible, right? There's no Christian he's here. There's no fakeness here. He's not trying to put up a front in front of his people, right, because he's their leader. He says, I need you with me because I'm dying. That's what he says. That's not a good way to win followers, Okay. He doesn't go to God and say, you know, it's hard, but God, it's all good. It's all good. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. (laughs) Jesus Christ lived God is good all the time. Jesus Christ trusted God is good all the time. Jesus Christ depended on God is good all the time. And still he says, God, I'm falling apart here. If it's possible, let it pass from me. He's honest, but he's obedient. That's what prayer is, by the way. It's the honesty of your heart coupled with your commitment to obey. Put it together. That's what you pray. God will shape you. He will shape you. I wish I could say more. Number five, community. The king of the universe, knowing everything that he would already go through, says, I need you near me why wouldn't you need people near you why wouldn't you need people there for you think about what he says come with me watch over me pray for me he needed it why wouldn't you need it i can say more plug into community groups okay get connected with people other brothers and sisters in christ intimately okay listen to the real stuff not the not the pretty stuff number six it's a community but it's a broken community the disciples had one job watch over pray and they failed right are there people in your life that have failed you fallen asleep on you while you're suffering in your worst place so you feel alone how'd you respond you say well, i'm done with these guys I'm done with them Jesus Christ never said, I'm done with you, until the day he says, I have completed the work that I've done in you, okay? He just forgives, and he dies for his people. That's love. That's a true friend. Forgive. Number seven, trust. Kind of couples with the first point, In Jesus, we have the perfect embodiment of integrity and prayer and friendship. We have an advocate. That's why you trust, totally, right? But we don't trust in him. We just take matters into our own hands. We don't really trust. In fact, we don't even trust ourselves. That's why we're constantly, some of us are talking too much to people. They should not make this decision or this decision. Do this and this. Too many, you know, nowadays they say that you go to Whole Foods, before you just bought, there are only like three choices of peanut butter. Now you go to, there's a whole aisle of peanut butter. And that is actually not creating better decision making. It's actually creating worse decision making. People say it's actually taking the power and the initiative that we have given to people, and now they don't know what to do with their lives. But we can trust Jesus. You don't have to be afraid that God's going to let you down. Look, at, I'm going to just say this, okay, very quickly, right? Look at Jesus' love for you in the garden. He drank the fire of hell. He didn't melt away in his love for you, right? He did not, he did not one bit take a step back, right, and say, do I really want to do this? Not really. Let me think about this. He never did that. He just kept going as he was walking. He was enduring this, right? Do you think there's anything that you could do in your life that would make him change his mind? Don't let guilt rule you. Don't let Your suffering rule you. There is no setback that is so great that will take you out of the Father's love. I wish I could say more. I am going to go to the last one. Let's talk about suffering. And I know some people here have suffered tremendously, and so I don't want to minimize it, right? Please just forgive. It's just lack of time, right? In Jesus, even death cannot separate you from the love of God. Even through that brokenness, you actually have the ultimate access to God. So if you face, in your many furnaces, you can face it with courage. You can face it with poise. Jesus is dying in the dark, alone for you. Go to him. Meet him there. Watch him. Pray. That's what the disciples do. Fall down with him. See the sweat and the blood and the tears that were shed for you and rise again with him. Let's respond to that, okay? Let's pray.